0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is on the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it is Tuesday, May 31st, we are almost in June. Over the weekend, I talked to my old friends, um, Kerry Arsenault and Bathsheba Demuth about a an initiative that uh, they, they're they working on together at Brown University about telling effective stories on the environment. Um, many of you will be familiar with Kerry Arsenal's, uh book, Milltown, Reckoning with What Remains, a book about the environmental and other catastrophes, I think, of 20th and early 21st century American life. Others of you will be familiar with the uh, Bathsheba DeMuth's book, Floating Coast, An Environmental History of the Bering Strait, a remarkably original historical and anthropological uh, book about uh, the Bering Strait. Both have been on the shows uh, before talking about their books. But what they're doing at Brown University, uh, Kerry and uh, Bathsheba, is putting together what they're calling an environmental storytelling studio. They're trying to show academics in particular how to tell credible stories, compelling stories, um, seductive stories about the environment, and I think particularly our environmental catastrophe. They're trying, I guess, in a peculiar way to try to turn academics into novelists. So it's appropriate today that we have a novelist uh, on the show, very creative one, has a new, new book out, her first book walk the Fanish uh, the van not the famished walk <laughs> the vanished earth by erin swan uh, her day job is as a school teacher in new york and erin is joining us from brooklyn today erin congratulations on the book it's just out of first book yeah wow, very exciting
1: thank you andrew it's very exci- it's a very exciting day
0: in every way so, i don't want to pigeonhole you. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm interpreting Walk uh, the Vanished Earth as a book about the environment, about telling stories about the environment. Is that fair? Am I vulgarizing the book?
1: No, I think that's fair. Um, It's about a lot of things. I think it's a little complicated to fit it into a single category. Um, But it is very much about the environment and it is about how how we as humans affect the world that we live in. Um, but it is also about lots of other things, such as this country—you know, the country that I live in. It's about family primarily. I see it as a family saga. Um, but for sure, environmental fiction is is very much a part of this novel.
0: For very very briefly, don't give away the whole plot, but tell me <laughs> a little bit because it's a very innovative plot. It plays around with time and space in an unusual way. So, so tell me what um, what walk the vanished earth is about tell me it's narrative
1: sure i mean my my very brief um synopsis is that it's a family saga that begins in kansas with a bison hunter in 1873 and i say that it ends on mars 200 years later with one of his descendants who's kind of an alien um but in but it juggles around time quite a bit so it, it It starts, the first chapter is in Kansas, the second chapter is on Mars, and then the timeline shift as it goes through. And the whole book follows a single family line, seven generations of this family line, as they progress through various um, timelines, through various landscapes, and deal with increasingly more tense conflicts, both within themselves and in the world
0: around them. Erin, one headline today is about uh, Elon Musk versus Jeff Bezos in the battle (laughs) <laughs> of the space billionaires settling uh, the universe outside the earth. Is um is walk the vanished earth in part a a warning about leaving this planet and trying to colonize other ones?
1: I think that was that was part of my agenda, um, because so much of the book also is about the United States and about um our colonization of this continent and how we have changed it and how we have altered it as we moved across it westward. And then imagining what we will do if we go to other planets or, you know, say if, you know, there's always talk about going to the moon or, you know, very much it's a talk about going to Mars now. So of course I am curious and I'm wary of what that might entail. Um, Because I mean, I can't argue that we've made a perfect job of it here so i'm curious what will happen if we decide to to take our species elsewhere
0: when you say we haven't done a perfect job are you speaking particularly about americans
1: i am i mean yes i mean i think i think the novel is very america centered um because of course i am american and i live in this country so yeah i'm thinking very much about about how we have changed this continent right and and the kind of country that we've created for ourselves but you could you could push the argument further you know to humanity in general
0: are there particular events that triggered your determination to write the book inside or outside america for example we did a show a couple of months ago with the journalist scott carney about his book vortex which mm-hmm. it- about an environmental apocalypse just actually after the Second World War that resulted in what he calls the genocide of three million Bangladeshis. Are there particular environmental catastrophes that really triggered your interest and determination to write this book?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, a big part of the book was, for me, was Hurricane Katrina, because I remember in 2005, right, I remember when that happened, I had lived in New Orleans um, a number of years before, and then when that happened, it just seemed such a a, a very acute, reckoning might be the wrong word, because I don't know how much we actually reckoned with it, but an acute warning to what could happen um for people in various levels of of economic stability and in places that are specifically on coastlines so that for sure was like a galvanizing force for it and then as i was writing the book um there's a section that takes place in 2017 and and i actually wrote that part in 2017. so as i find myself writing these parts there's all these other hurricanes right and then there's um fires out west and then there's Uh,
0: in paradise of all places we did a show even with a journalist who wrote a book called paradise about the terrible fire in paradise a small northern californian town appropriate given america's thinking about the idea of paradise and the settling of the land
1: yeah And it's terrifying, you know, you're in the middle of trying to write fiction. Right. Um, and then real life events are happening around you and it just highlights the, I think the urgency of, of the whole question, like, how are we going to live in this world and how are we going to, how are we going to make it more sustainable? And are we
0: really? I mentioned earlier, um, uh, and, uh, Demuth's Mm -hmm. initiative at Brown, the environmental storytelling studio. I asked uh, one of them what um, wh- what novelists can learn from academics. And, mm-hmm. and they said, because uh, I think it was Kerry Arsenault who's a, a novelist. I know and she said, well, we can learn rigor, data. Did you do a lot of research for Walk the Vanished Earth? It's obviously a creative piece of fiction, mm-hmm. but how much? uh research did you do on the, the current environmental crisis
1: yeah i did i did research as i went primarily to make sure i had details right um i think a lot of my research had to do with you know the geography of mars um and the and the atmosphere of mars and trying to figure, like making sure that i got that cor- as correct as i possibly could um in terms of research about the environment i mean i, I a lot of, a lot of my research was, was fact checking myself. So making sure if, you know, I mentioned a place with certain kinds of trees that those trees really existed there, there was a spot, um, where they're up across the border in the North in Canada. And I mentioned certain, you know, flora and fauna up there. So I had to make sure that those things actually existed in that particular part. So a lot of it for me was fact checking very much. Um, and then, you know, filtering and all the things that I would read on a daily basis. So I got in the habit, um, before writing every morning, I would read the headlines of the New York Times to further galvanize me and for what I wanted to say on the page.
0: Not unusual, Aaron, as a novelist to read the headlines of the New York Times. <laughs> um, as I said, your day job is as a school teacher, mm-hmm. very influenced by... Richard Powers' novel, Bewilderment. I'm sure you've read it. Uh, again, a, a, a rather apocalyptic environmental book, which thinks about children in an interesting way, suggesting mm-hmm. that children, and particularly children perhaps on the spectrum, have better insight into the catastrophe that's occurring all around us. I wonder, as a school teacher, whether you, you have particular thoughts on that. Are there a lot of children in? walk the vanished earth? What what is the role of of the child, the innocent child, in making sense of all this destruction around us?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, certainly as a teacher, I think about the future all the time, right? So every day, you know, I teach high school. This year I teach ninth grade and I teach twelfth grade, um, which is an interesting mix because the ninth graders are just kind of embarking on their understanding of the world and really thinking about themselves as individuals in that world. And then the twelfth graders are they're not going out there, right? They're about to graduate, they're they're inheriting this this world that we've created. So I think a great deal about what's in store for them and how they process it. I don't know if they have like a, a greater sense or greater intuition when it comes to it, but I do sense a lot of, despair is definitely not the word, but I sense a lot of trepidation on their part and anxiety on their part about what's to come and what that's gonna mean for them um and in the book there are a lot of children and i i don't know how innocent the children are in the book um some of them unfortunately have had their innocence quite quickly taken away from them but there is one character um kay she's called in the kansas city section and she is very her her psychiatrist and her parents think that she's very nervous about climate change and she is but she's also nervous she's having all these um issues with her mental health but and it goes deeper than that with these dreams that she has that are connected to the family so i think in the book that the children i have to reckon with with the future that's facing them and i, I, I imagine that was very subconsciously influenced yeah. by working
0: with and talking about the, the, the subconscious and anxiety. I uh, did a show last year with the English psychologist psychiatrist Lucy Jones, who also writes about the earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has an interesting book out, Losing Eden, Our Fundamental Need for the Natural World and Its Ability to Heal Body and Soul. And she was on the show talking about this key relationship in her mind, at least, between mm-hmm. the natural world and the human psyche. Do you think much of the anxiety, particularly affecting younger people is bound up in our environmental crisis it seems to me and again i don't want to generalize but mm-hmm. talking to many young people they're simply so anxious about the future of the world they, they don't want to have kids they're wary of commitment mm-hmm. um, they're angry about my generation's inability to confront this crisis mm-hmm. is there a connection do you think between seems like almost an epidemic of anxiety amongst young people or, or broadly, but particularly amongst young people and our environmental crisis.
1: Yeah, I think, I think for sure there's a connection. We talk about it all the time in the classroom. I mean, it goes beyond that. I think for them also, at least with the, I work in a, um, a public school in New York city and a lot of their concerns are about jobs and it's about money. Um, it's about how to pay for college. It's about returning the investment to their parents, many of whom have sacrificed a great deal to put the kids where they are now. Um, and they do, they do talk about the environment. They do talk about climate change. If I use too much paper, they get really angry, <laughs> um, you know, because they're trying to to do what they can to, to to protect the world. So yeah, I think there's definitely a link there. Um, and it's interesting also, they're city kids. I don't know if all the time the, the countryside or the natural world is where they feel, might feel most comfortable. But they, are, they do seem very, yeah, filled with trepidation about what the possibilities are for the future. And definitely with the students I teach now, as opposed to maybe 10 years ago, more and more of them are discussing not having children. Like they don't want them because they don't know what they can leave for them.
0: How should we be teaching children about this crisis? I mean, of course, your book, yeah. The Vanished Earth, Earth, is an attempt in part to, I'm sure you'll have many um many readers, y- younger readers, but um, it's nonetheless a, it's a novel for grown-ups. Mm-hmm. should we be teaching them to be awed by nature. We've had many conversations about the awesome nature. Mm-hmm. Forest for example, with my Northern California neighbor John Reed, who was on the show last month talking about evergreen saving big forests to save the planet. Should we pre- be presenting nature in an almost religious sense? as um, something to be believed in, as an awesome thing? Or should should we be presenting it in a different way? What what do you like to give your students to read about this?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think in terms of being in all of nature it would be helpful, but I think it's also a great thought to have them experience nature on a very personal and individual um, and face-to-face level. So when I was a kid, I lived in the city when I was a kid, but we spent a, a great deal of time in the summer, just kind of living in the woods and tents. And that was when I I learned to love nature. My mother was very much like a conservationist and into the natural world. And she would teach me a lot about animals and um, bird calls and things like that. So, And that's how I be, I became acquainted with the natural world. And so if there's a way to get kids more, you know, in tune with that, not necessarily having to view it as a religious way, um, but being able to to approach it on a that kind of very intimate level, it helps them see it as a as a real thing, right? The magnificence magnificence of of the very small aspects of nature that they can see, I think,
0: would be very helpful. I assume um, there's a polemical element to the novel, Walk the Vanished Earth. You don't want people to be going to Mars. You don't want to destroy the Earth. So what are we going to do, Erin? Is there a is there <laughs> any good. element of a, a, a manifesto? What to do now? We've had many shows, even yes. one good, or what we need to do now in terms of zero carbon um, issues. He believes in a more centrist political uh, solution. Is the fix political, or is it something I,
1: else? I would say in part. I mean, of course, I'm not a politician, right? But I, for sure, part of the solutions can come from the politicians—they're the ones who make the choices, and they're the ones who make the laws. And for me, maybe it's a couple different things. Like, um, part of the solution is not focusing everything on making a profit, of course, right? So if you're always um, prioritizing
0: America, right?
1: Yeah, good luck with that. Good luck convincing people not to want to make money. Like, that's—I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's cynical, but that's. You know if people are so worried about making a profit why would they prioritize certain energy saving um solutions right and i also think in a large way something that could really help us is a, a focus on community um a focus with not being as isolated from each other a focus on creating spaces where we can meet together and we can talk together Um, because, you know, if we're so distant from each other and we're so focused on turning to profit, it becomes easier to rationalize certain choices when it comes to what are you going to save and and what are you going to destroy?
0: What do you think of, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Tony Hiss's work. Uh, He was on the show last month talking about rescuing the planet. We simply need to give back half the land to nature. We need to stop Colonizing the land. Of course, the idea of colonization of the land is a, is a deeply an American thing, not just American. Mm-hmm. Um, as Americans, do we need to stop thinking about nature as something to be exploited?
1: Yeah, definitely. Yes, I would argue that hundred percent. And that, I think that goes back to what I was saying before, right? If we're gonna, if we're going to make a choice. To you know, build more things in order to make more money, and if that's at the expense of you know our national parks, which are hard to hold on to anyway, um, then where's that going to leave us, right? Where are we going to get our oxygen from? Where are we going to get all these things that that the natural world gives to us? But then you know it's complicated, right? There's a lot of people in the world, so what do you do with all the people? So that's I think that's part well, of the.
0: What do you deal with all the people? We had a show about that. We need to bring down global birth rates and have fewer children. Is there a, a demographic angle to the, uh, to the book? Do people need to stop having so many kids is one of the problems. There simply too many people on this earth, particularly in America.
1: You could argue that. I mean, it's, it's probably easy for me to say I don't have children. Um, so it's, Although you're
0: surrounded with children. I
1: <laughs> right. I mean, I work with children every day. I don't have children of my own. So it's it might be unfair of me to say, you know, everybody needs to stop having kids
0: because I've already done that. right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's too, too easy for me to argue that.
0: What would happen if I gave you a trillion dollars to save the world? We did that thought experiment with, oh, with gosh. science journalist Rowan Hooper. And he came mm-hmm. up with an interesting environmental fixes if someone gave you a trillion dollars what would you focus on in terms of not walking the vanished earth but saving the vanished earth so
1: that it does not vanish right um i mean this isn't about i guess the environment but i would love healthcare for everybody across the world that would be pretty cool um i think that would go a long way towards solving people's not solving addressing people's um anxiety and despair about the future if they feel cared for and if they feel loved by their governments and then you know and certainly you know funneling money into into things that will conserve energy that will deal with waste um that will make products less you know products are made to break right so that's also a deep problem you as soon as you're done with your stuff you throw it out and you buy something else so if things can be more sustainable and marketing can change i mean how do you save the world you can i don't know one thing at a time i suppose right um uh, but those
0: are the two things I put the money towards. very sensible approach from a teacher um Aaron, um quite an accomplishment to write a novel many people are called few are chosen you've been chosen <laughs> the book is out Today, congratulations, very reputable press, pe- Penguin Random House. What have you learned about the writing of a novel, finishing a novel? You're also a, a prize-winning short story writer, but your day job is as a teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, what have you learned about the writing of a novel that you didn't know when you began? And, and what advice would you give aspiring first-time novelists who might be watching this?
1: yes i think um i've learned a lot of things one of the most important things i learned was that the hardest work comes with patience like that was that was the hardest work i think i had to put into the book i i loved writing the book it took many years i started it in 2014 as a tiny little short story and then it evolved and grew and grew and grew um but so much had to do with patience so if you're working on a project for so many years and i've been trying not trying i've been i've been working towards this goal for about Thirty years now, um, I've been writing seriously that long, <laughs> so this feels really great. Um, but yeah, that that kind of having faith and persevering, right? So you write your drafts; they're gonna need more work. You do more work; that's gonna need more work. You just keep going and going and going, and you keep persisting, and you have some kind of some level of faith faith that someday somebody's gonna love it like you love it, and be patient with the publishing process. Be pre- patient with your own process um and keep going
0: was it worth it or is it worth it i mean six years of hard work 30 years of less Mm. hard work that's a a very significant investment of time
1: oh yeah i mean it's definitely worth it it's all it's what i want to do yeah 100 percent worth it i mean i didn't i didn't have to sacrifice anything i just did what i enjoyed doing in my free time and it paid off
0: well congratulations again uh it's, a, it's an intriguing new book, Walk the Vanished Earth, and you're going to have a lot of followers. Uh, it's just out today. Um, I know you've got some book launch events. Mm-hmm. You could talk briefly about those too.
1: Sure, yeah. My, my...
0: To if they want to follow up and see you, we're, we're talking, as I said, on May 31st. You've got an event tonight, and then you've got one on June 1 and June 5th.
1: Yes, so my in-person book launches tonight at Powerhouse Arena in Dumbo, Brooklyn. You are more than welcome to come see me.
0: Well, I'll be watching tonight. I know we have a a lot of people listening from and watching from Brooklyn. So right. go out and see Erin, buy a book, shake her hand. Congratulate on a remarkable achievement. Please,
1: everybody I know will be there. It'll be great. super fun. And yes.
0: then the virtual uh, events uh, at, at Odyssey and mm-hmm. uh, NYDC Reading.
1: Yeah, the NYDC reading will be in person, too. That's a, that's a reading on Sunday, like part of their reading series um, in Greenpoint.
0: And finally, Erin, uh, obviously everyone needs to read your new book, uh, Walk the Vanished Earth. But what else should people be reading? What are you reading these days about? <laughs> sure. You're an avid reader. I'm sure you're enjoying reading, having finished your novel.
1: Yeah, I read all the time, constantly. So um, I have books next to me. I can do a little show and tell. Of course. Um, yeah so the book i'm reading right now i started it this weekend is unlikely animals i like animals so this works out really well for me um by Annie Hartnett, and i just finished this is probably no surprise but i just finished sea of tranquility by emily st john mandel who i'm a huge fan of this is also this
0: sure is, is a- touched on those uh, so anyone who likes emily uh, will like your work too it's a great book
1: yeah time travel human story i mean it's got everything um and then a fellow debuter i also recently read this beautiful book brown girls which has a collective um like a we uh first like a plural first person narrator which is amazing it's about girls and queens and i thought it was incredible um, and I'm going to give a shout out to my agent, Tanya <laughs> Kukafka, who is also an author. Um, and this is a book about a serial killer told th- mostly through the voices of women in his life. And then finally, I mean, this this is only a very small selection I read all the time. And then this book, The Sentence by Louise Erdrich, it's a ghost story it's set in the bookstore. So it had everything that I enjoy in the novel.